Warning, this show may contain adult content, language, and humor, and is intended for mature audiences. If that's not you, please stop listening now. Nothing you hear on Sex and Science Hour is intended as medical advice, financial advice, legal advice, therapy, or really anything other than entertainment. Please take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Oh, and if you're hearing us on an affiliate network, the ideas and views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the network you're listening on or of any sponsors or affiliate products you might hear about on the show. Now that all that's out of the way, let's start the show. This is Sex and Science Hour with Brian Sovereign and Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Get your freak on. Welcome to Sex and Science Hour. Have you ever wondered how gay your face looks? Well, now <laughs> you can upload it to an algorithm that will tell you exactly the answer to that question. This sounded like an infomercial for some kind of service that does this. Yeah, it did sound like an infomercial. I mean, this will probably be available for free. We know how Microsoft and Google and all the big companies love to get you to upload your face to do interesting things like make yourself look old or make yourself look like a man or a woman. Which is really just to improve their machine learning. But Definitely. Yeah. Well, according to The Guardian, artificial intelligence can now accurately guess whether people are gay or straight based on photos of their faces, according to new research that suggests machines have significantly better gaydar than humans. I don't know about that. Are we really putting everything on the blockchain now? I, not that this is going to be a blockchain, Wait, but are, are we really just, are we reducing everything to an algorithm or are people better judges of certain things than machines are? I guess we're going to find out. And, and like I said, this is from uh, The Guardian by Sam Levin in San Francisco. Uh, the study from Stanford University, which found that a computer algorithm could correctly distinguish between gay and straight men 81% of the time and 74% for women, has raised questions about the biological origins of sexual orientation, the ethics of facial detection technology, and the potential for this kind of software to violate people's privacy or to be abused for anti-LGBT purposes. The machine intelligence tested in the research which was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology and first reported in The Economist, was based on a sample of more than 35,000 facial images that men and women publicly posted on a U.S. dating website. So basically, they went to Grindr yeah. or <laughs> some other websites that straight people they went on. They went to a self-reported source. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they trained their machine learning algorithm to look recognize what are the gay faces and what are the straight faces. The researchers Michael Kaczynski and Yilun Wang extracted features from the images using, quote, deep neural networks, meaning a sophisticated mathematical system that learns to analyze visuals based on a large data set. The research found that gay men and women tended to have, quote, gender atypical features, expressions and grooming styles, essentially meaning gay men appeared more feminine and lesbian women appeared more masculine. The data also identified certain trends, including that gay men have narrower jaws, longer noses, and larger foreheads than straight men, and that gay women had larger jaws and smaller foreheads compared to straight women. Human judges performed much worse than the algorithm. Now, who did they get as their judges? I, if you get a real gay person on your panel, they're going to have better gaydar, I'm just well, saying, the, than a researcher would. Yeah, would I mean, there's great. a lot of problems with this. Like, if, if you're going to get humans to do it, so, I mean, ask any human being, so what does a gay person look like? Right. You know, and you're going to get society, I mean, it's almost like an algorithm. It's almost like machine learning, where you're going to get a pre-programmed response of whatever Hollywood kind of, sh you know, schlepped Oh, you're you. saying a lot of people have stereotypes? Yeah, they, yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree stereotypes that. that they don't, they didn't choose, they have no idea about. It's just based upon what they saw on TV or what was in a movie or something like this. Or uh, what they heard growing up, because, yeah, I, I distinctly remember several times in high school when I was not out of the closet as bisexual. I am a queer bisexual woman. So mm -hmm. I wonder what this algorithm would say about me because it seems to only have a binary setting of gay or straight, right? 
Would yeah, it, which just would it, adds can to it distinguish the queers? Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> but yeah. sexuality is not as as uh, straightforward as just gay or straight. All even though some people want to make it that simple, but just for the sake of argument, you sure. know, let's just ignore that for a minute. Sure. I remember growing up and hearing uh, adults say, "Oh yeah, you can tell someone's gay by looking in their eyes or by by the <laughs> look on their face," and I just always thought that was so funny. Like, yes, some people look obviously flaming you know and some of that is on purpose because they want people to know they're gay maybe they're looking for a partner or something like that yeah sure for whatever reason they want to advertise the fact that they're gay same reason i wear a starfleet uniform all the time you know it's like where are the star trek fans come and get me (laughs) (laughs) so are you coming out of the closet as a star trek fan that's right i'm out of the closet (laughs) (laughs) i think you were out a long time ago but uh anyway yeah so some people want others to know they're gay so they play it up a little bit and some people have suggested that even the the sound of of uh, the way some gay men talk, with sort of a lisp or like there's just a way of that they talk, like you know it if you hear it. And I can't. I'm sorry, I can't describe it as precisely as the algorithm, but you know it if you hear it. And some people have suggested that that's actually a learned behavior to court to telegraph to other people that they're gay. Mm. However, with with some people, you would never know. You would never know unless they came out to you. Right. So I don't believe that you can tell every gay person just by looking at them. And also, you know, like this article brought up, the privacy implications of this are are very scary because we all upload photos of our faces to every social network there is, Facebook, LinkedIn. You know, what if you could go through LinkedIn and, and see who the gays were or who the fa- gays were on Facebook, you know, and maybe they don't want you to know that because maybe you're a politician who is going to persecute them or something like that. Right. Well, I'm curious. I mean, what what else? What came of this? Like, I mean, what? Okay, so they're saying that the the algorithm is better than humans. Yep. So human judges were uh, were on a panel that were trying to pick out who was gay with their gaydar, their human, their inferior human gaydar. <laughs> Accurately identified orientation only sixty one percent of the time for men, and fifty four percent for women. So they were they were just shy of. Uh, you know, baseline of like being right half yeah, the time. 50-50. Yeah. 50-50 shot of being correct. When the software reviewed five images per person, it was even more successful. It got it, got it right 91% of the time with men and 83% of the time with women. Broadly, that means, quote, faces contain much more information about sexual orientation than can be perceived and interpreted by the human brain, the authors wrote. Now, this definitely, I agree with what they're saying that, you know, it kind of points to a biological basis uh, for homosexuality or whatever, or that there's some biological influence. I've heard for a long time that if you're a woman and your ring finger is longer than your first finger, that means you got exposed to high testosterone in your mother's womb, and it means you're more likely to be a queer. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at my hand, and yep, my ring finger is longer <laughs> than my first <laughs> finger, and I'm a queer. Um, <laughs> so that that was right. But uh, they say that, that that basically is the influence of the testosterone hormone on your developing brain, and it makes you gay later in life. And so if it can affect your finger length, I'm sure it could affect facial features. But also, facial features could just as easily be an environmental thing or a, or a learned thing. You know, people can shape their faces by essentially the the exercises that we do with our facial muscles. Mm -hmm. There are whole facial yoga programs for people to try to give themselves a natural facelift by exercising the muscles in their mouth and their cheeks and stuff like that. And so what if by some mechanism, I'm not saying that gay guys are giving their cheeks a workout or (laughs) (laughs) don't get me wrong, but I mean, what if there's some mechanism where... It is in some way like even an unconsciously learned behavior. I mean, I don't think this this definitely means that, uh, you know, gayness is controlled by hormones or whatever. Well, I and think do we even could... need to search for a basis for it? Right? No, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just as possible to choose to be a part of like a very you know gay situation, you know, a very homosexual situation. This isn't something I mean, because here's the concern, right? I think that a lot of people would have. I don't know if this article brings it up. Mm-hmm. But the concern would be that, okay, now this is how they're going to categorize people and yeah. this is how they're going to round people up. Yeah, exactly. Um, and look, you know, that's not, I mean, I'll go there. 
yeah, this is exactly why the Nazis implemented a punch card system from IBM was so that they could round up the Jews. Uh, right. You know, that's how they knew. That's how they were able to round them up because they could identify them so quickly through this completely voluntary uh, uh, punch card system. And so is something like this going to end up getting used against people for varying reasons? Yeah, I mean, I think... How long until they start developing algorithms that tell how black or brown you are, right? Yeah, well, that's the bottom line for any of this stuff and for any of this research. They can couch it in, can you tell if people are gay via this? Mm -hmm. They just want to implement, as, you know, and all of these companies do this. Microsoft, Google, uh, you know, Apple, go down the list. Every single one of them. Why do they all offer largely free photo uploading services? Because they implement all of that into their machine learning, which AI isn't exactly the correct term to use for it. Uh, but those those terms get used interchangeably. Okay, they, they offer it for free because they get the payoff of making their machine learning that much better and where they can recognize faces and have better surveillance uh, software and all of this, you know, with, with these technologies. And I think sometimes researchers will just come up with this kind of, with this novel way. Okay, of or a novel experiment like this, where it's like, can we tell if they're gay via this stuff? When really, it's just an excuse to 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 to, to attempt to voluntarily create like a much more precise yeah, uh, machine learning system. Yeah, huge database to track yeah. and control people, and that is yeah. the end game to track and control you. Now, what about the idea that this is pointing to evidence that gayness is biological and it's caused by exposure to hormones and it's not a choice and testosterone or whatever makes women gay and i don't know what makes men gay low testosterone i don't fucking know but <laughs> this this is pointing to the fact that there's some biological basis for gayness and it's not a choice why well, think sexuality has elements of both there's some yeah. you know inborn component to it and there's some socialization and things that we learn in our lives what that are okay and not okay to be attracted to and the point is, it doesn't matter. Even if it was a choice, it shouldn't matter. You should be free to choose to be gay if you want to, or bisexual, or asexual, or whatever you want to be. So, I, I don't really... I think that whole, it's not a choice argument is, it had its place back in a moment in time, but I think we've moved past that a little bit. Yeah. I think if it is a choice, you should be able to make that choice. Yeah, no, the human condition is incredibly complex to say it's just one thing. Can't reduce it to an algorithm. Yeah. We'll be right back. Stop There's more coming us. up. Hey, have you joined the Sex and Science Hour Facebook community yet? If you haven't, you know you want to. Go to Facebook.com, that tracking and categorizing algorithm, and type in Sex and Science Hour podcast community. Now, you'll have to answer a simple question just to let us know that you can tell us who the host of the podcast is, which isn't rocket science. It shouldn't be too hard if you listen to the show. It's just to keep out spammers. But go there because you'll get to see beyond the show prep discussions of articles, and you'll even get to suggest your own. Sex and Science Hour podcast community on Facebook. Now back to the show. Hey, it's Sex and Science Hour. We're back. Segment two here. Brian, have you ever wondered what happens? I'm going to guess no, you haven't wondered this, but I have. Okay. Have you ever wondered what happens when humans are in space and some humans get periods once a month? What happens when you have oh, a period in space? Actually, I've thought about this like a lot. You so have. I have. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I know you do a lot of thinking about humans and space life and in outer space absolutely. By various biological functions work like you did a whole show on your show sovereign tech about sex in space i've done like four of them <laughs> that's right <laughs> that was, sex that was the fourth one yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um so i'm gonna read you a brief history of menstruating in space this is what happens when you have your period in space and they have a picture of the all-male crew of the Mercury here. They're uh, this, menstruating? <laughs> no, they're not menstruating. That's why they sent them to space, because they wouldn't have to deal with this icky, messy problem. Um, <laughs> and this is by Amy Shira Titel from Popular Science. When NASA was preparing for Sally Ride's first space flight in 1983, there was some question about what should go in her personal kit. Namely, engineers decided to figure out how many tampons she would need for a one-week mission. Is a hundred the right number? <laughs> they asked her. Holy shit. No, that would not be the right number, she replied. The engineers explained that they wanted to be safe, and she assured them that they could cut that number in half without a problem. Now, for anybody who doesn't get this, that why that's funny, um... I mean, you'd probably use it at most, like, 
30 tampons in an average week if you have your period. Uh-huh. Uh, not 100. Hundreds <laughs> way too many. After allowing women into the astronaut corps in 1978, NASA really didn't know what to do with them. Funny, as questions over tampons and possible makeup kits in space seem in hindsight, it's an interesting look at an agency's rude awakening when faced with a whole new breed of astronauts. Women not in space. In 1959, 32 military test pilots went through some of the most rigorous physical testing ever devised at the Lovelace Clinic in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The men were probed, prodded, inspected inside and out until not a single body secret was kept from the physicians. Seven of the men went on to pass similarly rigorous psychological screening and emerged as NASA's first class of astronauts. The following year, the clinic's founder, Dr. Randy Lovelace, along with USAF Brigadier General Donald Flickinger, invited pilot Geraldine Cobb to go through the same testing. The men were curious how how the women would fare. On average, women are smaller, lighter, and consume fewer resources than men, making them potentially better suited to flying in the cramped area of a spacecraft in the 1960s. Cobb passed the tests, and by the end of the summer 1961, another 18 female pilots had submitted to the same rigorous testing as the Mercury astronauts. The only difference was the addition of a gynecological exam. (laughs) Thirteen women ultimately passed, proving themselves as ready for spaceflight as any of the Mercury astronauts. They actually had a higher success rate than the men. Only 18 of the 32 male candidates passed the physical testing, a 56% success rate, compared to 68% for the women. However physically fit, though, there was some question over women's suitability to fly in space. In a 1964 report published after the short-lived women's program was terminated, the question was raised whether a menstrual cycle would affect a woman's ability to work in space. The authors point specifically to the, quote, intricacies of matching a temperamental psychophysiologic read PMSing human and the complicated machine, i.e. spacecraft. So they were afraid that the women's PMS was going to interfere with their ability to work in space. How fucking sexist is that? Okay, yeah, you know, I just I, I want to cut in, like, because in contrast, this was never a problem in the USSR. Like, it just wasn't right. a problem. They No paper like this was ever drawn up there. You know, I mean, it's still nothing, like, even now that it's RKO, like, none, none of these things, it's just not a part of the program. I mean, over there, like, women pilots... Women pilots have been leading entire wings. They've been wing commanders in Russia since World War II. I mean, like, this is just so backwards thinking. And (laughs) arguably, I mean, you know, uh, uh, you know, Russia, you know, the Russian government has engaged in far more extreme experiments than anything NASA's ever tried. You know, I mean, not just they're they're night and day the difference. And in fact, honestly, Russia still has a space program. So woohoo! All right. <laughs> I mean, it's mind boggling to me. They left it to the women. Yeah, there's no science being done here. Okay, this is pure <laughs> no cultural I don't think bullshit. Claiming it's science, I mean, I think she's just writing about this to expose the bullshit. No, no, I know, I know. But I'm just saying that look, NASA wasn't engaging in any science here. They were full of crap from the get go, and their competition was smoking their ass because they were they weren't wasting their time on sexism. You know, on sexism yeah. exactly I agree. Uh, th- this is like i'm just hearing this and i'm like wow this is ridiculous in other countries this wouldn't even be an issue it just shows how backwards thinking america can be <laughs> continue please. yeah not a lot has changed actually no okay so blood in space with female astronauts training for space flight nasa finally had to address the complicated question of what what went on when a human went through a menstrual cycle in microgravity by the 1970s, NASA knew the cardiovascular system was greatly affected by spaceflight. Because humans evolved in Earth's gravity, our bodies got really good at fighting gravity to pump blood from the lower extremities to the chest, where that blood can be reoxygenated and circulated throughout the body. But when there's no gravity to flight, the system gets sort of lazy. Oh, sorry. When there's no gravity to fight, the system gets sort of lazy. The heart doesn't need to work as hard, and blood and fluids pool in the upper body and head, giving astronauts the characteristic puffy face chicken legs look. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing this, engineers and flight surgeons weren't sure if something similar might happen to a menstruating woman in space. If blood in the body pools in the torso and head, could menstrual blood float upwards and pool in the abdomen? 
retrograde menstrual flow was a real worry because concerns could uh, consequences could be significant. Worst case, this could cause a condition known as peritonitis, an inflammation of the membrane lining the abdominal wall and organ inside the abdomen. Left untreated, peritonitis can be a life-threatening condition. No one wanted to send a woman into space only to have her die because of her body's natural cycle. But there's a pretty big difference between blood circulation and menstruation. Lots of differences, really, to be clear. The former is controlled by a network of arteries and veins that work all the time, while the latter is controlled by hormones. The flow of menstrual blood isn't guided the way circulating blood is. So while male engineers were worried about retrograde bleeding, the female astronauts weren't worried at all. They expected a period in space to be the same as a period on Earth and wanted to treat it as a non-issue until it became an issue. The problem was there was no way to prove the women right. Someone would have to menstruate in space to close the issue. Sally Ride. <laughs> to bleed or not to bleed. It's not clear who was the first woman to menstruate in space, probably because no one wants to talk about it. But someone did, and the answer came back just as the female astronauts expected it would. A period is the same in space as it was on Earth. The challenge then became for Na NASA to deal with its menstruating astronauts. No two women menstruate exactly alike or have the same preferences, so the agency had to make provisions for women to carry the right number of their favorite implements on board, be they pads or tampons. But when you're dealing with spaceflight and rocket science, this is a pretty easy problem to solve. There is, however, another option for female astronauts, and that's not having periods at all. Properly called medically induced amenorrhea, it's possible to suppress menstruation by messing with the body's hormones, which is what some birth control methods do. The combined oral contraceptive pill taken daily for 21 days, uh, and then the, during the fourth week you take a sugar pill, which allows the body to go into withdrawal bleeding, but if you take the active pill for a full month, it completely stops any bleeding. And then they go on to, uh, you know, say other options for stopping your periods, but basically, it was no big deal. Yeah. Um, well, oh, one more thing. Even in the immediate future, there are some advantages to astronauts suppressing menstruation. The toilets on the American side of the International Space Station are designed to recycle water from urine, but they aren't designed to handle menstrual blood. So minimizing bleeding means more reclaimed water on board. There's also the practical side of having limited hygiene products and clean clothes in space. Not having to change a pad or tampon could make a trip more comfortable. But at the end of the day, NASA does have provisions on board the ISS for astronauts to menstruate in space, should they choose to go with the natural body cycle or not use hormonal birth control, which is a good thing. Not only are women not dying by having periods in space, they have the same earthly right to make their own choices about their reproductive health. Yeah, hell yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I'll, okay, so I'll give a little bit of empathy to the scientists of, the, of their day, particularly during like the Mercury program. At the time, like you can listen to the Mercury scientists like John Glenn or, you know, all these other guys, not John Glenn, but all these other guys would tell you that, oh, they thought that their eyes were going to, you know, turn into squares, like happen. all this weird shit was going to go on and they just didn't know. But where I'm not going to give them a pass is that at that same time, they weren't studying, you know, women's biology no. anyway. They were just writing it off. They were ignoring block. it. All right. Don't go away. Don't ignore us. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Uh, we have some exciting news. I got an email from a listener the other day who thought that they had heard this and was wondering if they dreamt it or if it was real. Are we really collecting submissions for a paleo erotica anthology? Well, it wasn't a dream. Yes, we are. <laughs> Brian and I are making an erotic anthology called Paleo Erotica. And, you know, it sounds like caveman sex, but we really want a diverse period of time periods, a diverse amount of time periods represented. We want stories from all over the world in all different ancient times that all center around sex. 1,000 to 17,000 words. <laughs> yes, we all said it at the same time. And we want the submissions by November 30th. So Paleo Erotica... Uh, we had some ideas that we were talking about today, but we want you to come up with your own stuff. So send those submissions in to show at sexandsciencehour.com by November 30th. And now back to the show. This is Sex and Science Hour. By the way, you can get some inspiration in the form of weekly erotic shorts and you can get more information about the Paleoerotica Anthology by subscribing to Brian's newsletter at zog.email, z-o-g.email. 
that's the website and yeah you can get a actually all the rules for paleoerotica are in like every issue you can read all the past issues at zog.email but there's a big sign up form right at the top of the page you just hit it and you'll every every couple weeks you'll get a a pretty loaded newsletter that I think you'll enjoy. And there's a lot of sexy in it too. So absolutely. And this is going to be an awesome anthology. I mean, it's just going to be, it's going to be a great erotic anthology because it's going to be something that you don't expect. It's going to be like, the theme itself is new and different. It's like it hasn't been done before. Yeah. <laughs> but we even within that theme, we're going to have a huge diversity of stories. So if you if you want to send something in, you know, you can let us know that you plan on sending something in, but we'd love to hear from you. Okay, and we are in the sex segment. So let's not waste any time on that, shall we? We got this email through our well, actually, we got an article sent in through our Facebook group. And this is from the New York Post, which is kind of famous for you know it's it's meant to get people to click on it okay <laughs> they can be a little hyperbolic yeah, yeah i think so and the headline is woman born without vagina raising money so she can have sex with her boyfriend the family of a woman born without a vagina has launched a crowdfunding campaign for surgery that would allow her to experience intimacy and live a more normal life Kaylee Motes from Arizona suffers from Meyer Rokitansky Kusterhauser syndrome, MRKH, which means that she had has no cervix, uterus, or vaginal opening. Her boyfriend of four months, Robbie Limmer, says he doesn't care about the lack of sex in their relationship. Motes needs $15,000 for the surgery, and the crowdfunding page was set up by her sister, Amanda, and has already raised $5,000 in two months. I met Robbie in my senior year of college. No, sorry. <laughs> this is what she says. Wow. a quote from her. I met Robbie in my senior year of college when I was working at the front desk. He thought I was cute, and he came up to me, and we started talking, she told the Daily Mail. It took about a month for me to tell him that I have MRKH. He was confused at first, but supportive, and said it doesn't change how he feels about me. He doesn't really focus on the sexual side of our relationship, because we can't, because we can't do anything since I don't have a vaginal opening, she said. And we're going to come back to that quote. Believe yeah. me. That's a misinformation there. We can't do anything since I don't have a vaginal opening, she said. But I'm looking forward to having a sexual relationship. I'm not sure if I want to wait until marriage, but I think having that option there is a lot more comforting. I'm a bit nervous to have sex for the first time after surgery because I'm not sure if something's going to go wrong down there or if it is going to hurt, she said. Motes says her vagina looks exactly how it should, except that instead of having a vaginal opening, there's a little dimpled skin where the hole should be. She says she ovulates like other women, but gets it gets dissolved into her ovaries. Motes says the crowdfunding is necessary because her health insurance won't cover the surgery. The fact is that insurance considers this a cosmetic or gender reassignment surgery, and it really upsets me, she says. I have all the correct chromosomes of a woman, so it's not gender or cosmetic because it's not what's outside that's different. I can't see inside. I can't see inside what is wrong with me. <laughs> okay, so there's a lot to unpack in this article. Yeah. Um, I guess they're they're saying it's sort of a controversy because she's fundraising. She's doing like a crowdfunding to have this surgery, which if your insurance doesn't cover it, I don't see the problem with that, right? Like, how are you going to pay for it otherwise, right? Yeah, I mean, if you can't pay for it yourself, but, you know, you want to see if there's enough people out there that maybe give a damn about it, why not? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, there's nothing wrong with asking people for money. Like, there, there's, totally. a, there's a real, you know, we're talking about backwards thinking in America. And this is something actually that, uh, like, the tech world and some other areas are really starting to wisen up to is that we, we got to start being able to ask people for money. Like, I mean, like, you know, even with even outside of so much charity and everything like it's really okay you mm -hmm. know to to do that uh, especially for i mean for something like this i think that's completely valid totally i mean i would be fine with a transgender person asking for doing a crowdfunding sure. to have gender you know sexual reassignment surgery or whatever um because i know a lot of times insurance doesn't cover that and doesn't cover hormones or for transgender people um, so, you know, I'm fine with her asking for money. I guess the, I think the implication of framing it that way of like, oh my God, she's raising money so she can have sex with her boyfriend is like a couple of assumptions wrapped up in that, right? One is that, oh my God, how dare this woman believe that she's entitled to have sex? She thinks she's entitled to sex? And how dare we be asked to pay for sex that only this guy can enjoy? 
right? Why should we pay for another dude to enjoy her new pussy, right? Because it's for a guy to enjoy, right? <laughs> and both of those are wrong, <laughs> right? Like, I would love her to be able to do all kinds of sexual things for her own pleasure. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's a, that's what it's about it or should be about. It's about her pleasure, you know, but another thing on that point is that just because you don't have a vagina or a vaginal opening doesn't mean you're completely sexually stunted. It doesn't mean there's literally nothing you can do, which is what it sounds like she thinks. Yeah, that, that's that's where, where I think she might be a little off on this. And, and that's that's concerning. Yeah. That... And the article just plays right into it, of course, because most people think that PIV, penis and vagina, heterosexual vaginal intercourse is the end all be all of sex that's what counts yeah, as sex it's not sex if that doesn't happen right but in reality so much other stuff counts as sex and is totally acceptable and valid forms of sexual pleasure and we'll talk about some of those things i mean does she still does she still have a clitoris yes yeah she right. has a clitoris she has to. I mean, yeah yeah and, and far as far as i'm concerned i mean you know that's the that's where it's at it's the devil's doorbell <laughs> well, i mean that's sexual yeah. pleasure for a person who has one i mean that's like the the jackpot that's way better than a vagina so you know uh she can still play with her clitoris she could here let's list let's get creative and think of, do a thought experiment and think of all the things they could do together that don't involve him fucking her vagina with his penis um how about oral sex Right. It could go both ways. He could lick her clit. She could, you know, uh, give him a blowjob. I will say hand jobs. And generally, I don't I don't care to, like, defend a guy in any way. But that could be a little odd if, like, he sees that patch of skin like that. I guess. But I, I, I mean, mean I, I'm just saying that, like, I, I would I would understand if like that kind of, I mean, if you love the person, you get over these yeah, things. Yeah, you get used to it. Right. But I'm just saying like, I can understand where maybe they think that that's, if, if, if he said he thought that was a little odd, I guess I would kind of get it. But still, the point is the same. Like you're saying, is that there's so many different things to do as far as PIV. Keep going. Yeah. Well, and by the way, like if you're going down on a woman, you should be focusing on the clitoris. Like we don't like tongue fucking. Okay. I'm yeah, just going to speak absolutely. for all women there. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, maybe there's some out there that do, but generally the clitoris is where you, where you want to focus your attention. If you don't know what to do, just lick the alphabet. Right. That's always a good tip or just do circles with your tongue. Just to kind of relax your tongue and do circles. And it, a lot of women like really consistent stimulation. So find something that feels good to her and confirm that with her by communicating, asking, listening to her sounds, her breathing, her face. If she looks like she's enjoying it or she says she's enjoying it, keep doing that and just keep doing it. And um, yeah, there you go. It's pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't have to be this mystery. Anyway, um, more stuff they could do. Hand jobs that could go either way. Right. Yep. Uh, get get out some oil and or lube and bust it out. Rub each other down. Um, how about outer course? That's uh, something that people uh, do that for whatever reason, either because they don't have a vagina or their vagina is not available for fucking. Like if they just had a baby or that's, you know, they're having trouble producing lubrication or they're they just don't feel like being penetrated or they have trauma, sexual trauma. They don't want to be penetrated. Um, there's something called outer course, which is basically um, where a, if it's a heterosexual couple, the woman will like kind of hold her legs close together and the guy will put his penis like in between her thighs and just kind of fuck her thighs. Mm -hmm. And it feels a lot similar to a vagina, especially if you sure. put some lube in there or whatever. Um, they could do uh, titty fucking, yep. right? Well, and there's all kinds of places on the body. Got, yeah. We haven't even gotten anal. Oh, right. Yeah. Anal sex. I, I mean, yeah. You know, granted, like both ways too. everybody has right? an asshole. Go, yeah. Peg, go. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, that's that's a total possibility. Uh -huh. uh, I, I mean, and but like also empathy for the for the gal, like if she's not into that sort of shit, mm -hmm. I totally understand why. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess. But it's, it's hard to believe out of all those activities that there wasn't there isn't any one of those that she would want to try. Yeah. Right. You know. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's, it sort of seems like she's under the impression that once she gets the surgery and has a vagina created, it's going to be just like as if she was born with it. Well, no, absolutely not. First of all, it probably won't produce its own lu lubrication mm -hmm. like um, 
like natural, I guess, natural born vaginas <laughs> do. Yeah. Right. And it's probably going to be this, the tissue is going to be very delicate, just like when a transgender person gets sexual reassignment surgery, it, you can't just treat it as though you would a cis woman's vagina. It's, yeah. it's not, it's more delicate tissue. You need a lot more lube and to go slower and to sort of like exercise, they like often exercise it. They have like dilators yeah. that make it stretch it out a little bit so it can accommodate uh, something of, of some significant girth. So I don't think it's just going to be all puppies and roses. Like as soon as she gets the surgery, yeah, it probably is going to hurt and you're going to have to get, it's going to come with an instruction manual. <laughs> you know, it's going to be different than the experience of a cisgender woman who was born with a vagina and has one for her whole life. Also the, the sort of the neural pathways, right? We learn to orgasm and we develop certain neural pathways. So like, for example, if, if a guy is circumcised at birth, right? Mm -hmm he essentially grows up his whole life without a foreskin. Now, if he somehow did foreskin rest restoration and got his foreskin back, it would not feel the same and it wouldn't be integrated into his orgasms and his masturbation and his pleasure in the same way as it, as it would be if he had never had the circumcision. Right. Because you've lived your whole life and your brain has developed certain neural pathways without that foreskin, right? So you can't just put it, plop it on and expect everything to be just exactly the same as it would have been if it was never missing. Yeah, you know, I still feel like with this, uh, you know, I, I don't, the, the gal, what she's doing, I have no problem with it, whatever. You know, she wants to do a GoFundMe or however this is working out, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, I'm not blaming her for anything. But like the guy, you know, part of me wants to say, you know what, dude, get to work. You, you know, you- What, you, oh, you, he, he should be doing the fundraising? Yeah, you, you, you do the- you, you know, you make the money for this. Well, I mean, if I mean, he's <laughs> if he's in an asexual relationship with her, I mean, maybe he's maybe he's gay or maybe he's uh, oh, asexual maybe. or yeah, maybe, maybe he's cheating on her. I don't know. I kind of find it hard to believe that most, you know, uh, <laughs> straight heterosexual cisgender guys would be just fine with a girlfriend that they're not having sex with. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. Um. Especially if she believes that there's literally nothing sexual they can do. Yeah, that without mindset the needs vagina. to change. Yeah. And, you know, one more thing on this. I do think it is actually hypocritical of an insurance company, an insurance company not to cover this surgery because insurance companies, and this has been a complaint of, of many women who have sexual uh, complaints or issues that are considered, that are, you know, addressed from a medical perspective, is that the health care system pays so much attention to male sexual uh, problems like erectile dysfunction, right? Every insurance company covers Viagra. If you get a prescription for Viagra or Cialis or anything like that, oh, sure, no problem. That's covered. Right. They would not even look twice at that. And it's considered a pressing medical need. It is considered medically necessary to get something like Viagra. But yet it's there's nothing akin to that that's covered like for women they don't cover vibrators you know <laughs> anything like that so <laughs> which are very good for your health in my opinion yes vibrators uh, <laughs> are excellent for your health yeah yeah you know it is kind of weird actually because i mean this is keeping her from having children i would think that that would fall i mean look insurance companies are a fucking scam and crazy anyway okay i'm not saying that that dealing with them is even worthwhile all right but i am kind of surprised that they're not covering this because that it well she wouldn't be able to have children because she doesn't have a uterus oh right so yeah. it's so not going to happen if she gets a vagina no, she's right, not going right. to have children so thank you dr murphy yeah. yes yeah okay <laughs> so yeah her sister did volunteer wow. to be like a surrogate for and carry her children but that's sort of a side issue so i don't know i just wanted to address the blatant sexual myths that are going on there it's a very some very weird ideas about sex that yes. I think uh, we need to take some time, pick apart, and uh, question. Very true. So we got a listener question: What do you guys think of the guy who shot his neighbor's tortoise who wandered onto his property? Is this example of the N? Is this an example of the NAP in action? And we're going to talk about what this is. But first, a little bit of background on the story. We're going to play the audio from this video to find out what happened. She's a good girl. She's more shy Here it is. than Merlin. This is from Daisy, Fox 8. a 16-year-old tortoise in Tasha Chappell's backyard. Chappell was the owner of two pet tortoises. Yeah, they were buddies. They've been together their whole lives. Until Friday. I'm so sick to my stomach that anybody would do anything so drastic like this. 
Chapel and her fiance say they don't know how, but Merlin got outside the fence and away from the yard. They say they believe they closed the gate. Chapel spent hours looking for the tortoise and heard Merlin had been spotted in the neighborhood. She says a man who lives nearby called and told her he'd shot Merlin. He goes, I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Um, so I said, so your resolution to this is to shoot him? In a phone call with 24-Hour News 8, that man called the incident terribly unfortunate. He said he gave his side of the story to detectives, but he refused to tell us that story. The man wouldn't say whether it was an accident, and he said his lawyer is now involved in the case. I didn't want him going deeper on my property. That's exactly what he told me on the phone. From her car to her Facebook, Chapel is now sharing the hashtag Justice for Merlin. She's asking people to buy these t-shirts to help with any legal fees. You know what? You messed with my daily life pretty big. Um, my whole family is torn apart with this. All right, so that's the news clip. Basically, uh, to give you a little recap, what happened was this woman had two pet tortoises. They were 16 years old, so that's a pretty big tortoise, right? Yeah. And tortoises are adorable. You know, they are, are beautiful animals, I and think. And relatively harmless. I would say they're they're extremely harmless. They're mm -hmm. very slow. All mm -hmm. you have to do to outrun them is just, <laughs> you can outwalk them. You don't even have to outrun them. Yeah. Um, they don't bite. And when they feel threatened, they go into their shell and they just sit there <laughs> and literally do nothing until the threat is gone. So, you know, one of the most peaceful animals that you could imagine has this self-defense mechanism, but unfortunately it didn't save it from from its ultimate fate because one of her tortoises got through the fence or got under the fence, got into the neighbor's yard, went into the neighbor's uh, property, and somehow the neighbor ended up shooting the tortoise. And so now she's, you know, very broken up and she's trying to sell some T-shirts or something like that. I I heard people say this is a T-shirt sales scheme, but I, <laughs> I, I really don't think it is. Um, <laughs> I think this really happened. Now, so we got asked, you know, what do we think of this? And the reference to the NAP, the NAP is an acronym. It stands for non-aggression principle. It is a philosophical idea of basically, you know, the, the, the primal commandment of morality is you shall not aggression, you shall not initiate aggression or force or fraud on another, on another person. And if somebody initiates, uh, aggression on you, then you are allowed to respond proportionally to that initiation of aggression in order to stop it. And if, if you can't stop it, then they owe you some kind of restitution that will re make up for the fact that you were aggressed upon. So it, it centers around the initiation of force as a primary no-no. And a lot of people give this example of if somebody trespasses on private property, well, basically the property owner, you know, can shoot them because they should have known, you know, they, they were... Because property is representative of you. Like it's a fruit of your labor. And, I guess, yeah. Well, that, I mean, I'm just saying to, to like to understand. It's not like you get to just decide walls or something and like all this arbitrary stuff. I mean, well, one could argue that that's what people do when they mm -hmm. uh, start to claim property. But the idea is is that your property is a is a byproduct of you. It is you, and so it's like damaging you. Right. And so you can do something about it. Uh, and yeah, and and there's there's kind of a a, a trope a. Um, an extreme example given right. that people will like if you just happen to accidentally fall on somebody's lawn, they can just come out and shoot you. Right. Or the the uh, the tr the other example is there's a little girl that skips onto your property and starts picking your flowers in your right. yard, and even though you had a no trespassing sign, she couldn't read it or something like that. Right. Are you justified in shooting the little girl? And obviously, no, because of the concept of proportionality. Well, number one, it just seems like an asshole thing to do, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Most people would agree that it's not okay to shoot the little girl who comes to your property and picks flowers, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, the idea of proportionality is like the, the punishment has to fit the crime, basically, mm -hmm. right? Like if somebody 
comes onto your property, they really didn't know, you know, maybe there, there wasn't a sign posted or they're just, they're not really harming anyone. They're just trespassing. You know, you could maybe ask them to leave or if they refuse to leave, you could kind of like pick them up and put them up, put them somewhere else that's not on your property, but you really can't like kill them, for example. Now, if somebody's rushing at you with a firearm, brandishing it or something like that, or somebody's trying to kill you, then maybe you would be justified in using legal, lethal force under this idea of the nap. Uh, some people, you know, obviously there's a lot to debate in there, but uh, that's the that's the, kind of the trope that I think this person was invoking. Now, on social media, everybody's saying, oh, my God, how could this guy shoot a tortoise? It's not a threat to him at all. Right. This is totally out of line. And also, like, animals aren't really covered by the nap. It's more of a, a human thing, right? Sure. Like, <laughs> you know, it doesn't really apply because the turtle can't think about morality. It doesn't understand property rights or anything like that. It doesn't understand boundaries. It just was doing what it's doing, tortoise thing. So, you know, it's a different kind of case with an animal. Um <laughs> So, well, then the concern is, is that is this analogous of that? Yes, if people just govern themselves by the nap, that when somebody, when the little girl starts picking the flowers, yes, people will go out and just shoot that little girl. You know, like, right, that's, that's kind of what the question asker was getting at, right? Is that, is this a, is this proof by analogy, uh, that that's exactly what would go down? I don't know what the question asker meant by that. It was just, you know, um, I guess they were, I guess they were asking if we think it's an example of the non-aggression principle. And I would say no, because it's an animal. I, I think they were saying is an example, is it an example, a real world example of the trope? Mm -hmm. I, I don't think oh, it was, oh, oh. yeah. Yeah. But you know, I, I, like, I, I hear you. It's not, well, I have problems with the nap across the board, you know? Yeah. So, what are some of those? Let's talk about that. Well, I mean, one of them is this, you know, whether an ant, whether the nap extends to animals or not. I mean, mm -hmm. and tortoise, turtles in general are one of those creatures in my mind that, yeah, I got to wonder at some point in the near future or now, do they have some degree of sapience or something like that? I mean, they live for so, I mean, depending upon the, you know, uh, uh, species, I, I guess I'll say, uh -huh. depending on, you know, what version we're talking about here, uh, they, <laughs> You know, they, they can live for over 100 years, you know, some even longer than 100 years, yeah. significantly longer. Uh, so you got to wonder, is there any wisdom going on there? Yeah, Whatever. you may have deprived that. Uh, right. How much sap sapience or sentience do you, do certain animals have? That's an interesting question. Uh, maybe one for another time. And yeah. we certainly do talk about that a lot on the show. But um, to the point of the non-aggression principle, I mean... I like the non-aggression principle. I think it makes sense. You know, I've always tried to live my life that way of not um, initiating force or fraud on somebody, right? It's mm -hmm. just basically like, hey, don't do violence to people. Don't hit people. Don't take their stuff. Be nice. You know, <laughs> don't like start shit with anybody. Um, and so I think most people try to live their life that way because it makes intuitive sense, right? If we're going to get along in the world, we kind of have to respect each other. And we Shh. wouldn't want other people you know, uh, starting shit with us. So we don't start shit with them. However, I think I see what I, what I sometimes see with people who use the non-aggression principle is that people with an itchy trigger finger or people who are, are eager to get into a fight or to use some kind of lethal violence or to use a firearm or something like that are just almost looking for somebody to start something with them so that then they will be able to use that weapon in self-defense and say, well, they started it. So then sometimes that, you know, in practice, it turns into people just looking for somebody else to quote, initiate force on them so that they can justify a retaliation, a retaliatory force. Yeah, they it almost turns into a justification for retaliatory force. And I don't like that. Yeah, well, your argument of proportionality, does, I, I rarely ever hear that come up in conversations. Yeah, that's right. The, the nuance gets lost yeah, a lot of times. It, it just doesn't happen. And, you know, this is this is one of my issues with the nap. Look, a broken window isn't isn't remotely comparable to a broken arm yeah, on a human that's being. That's right. They're, yeah. Like they, those things, those are not valid responses. OK, somebody breaks your window, throws a brick through your window or something like that. Look, I'm sorry. Your window's broken. That sucks. Okay, that does not mean you go outside with a baseball bat and start cracking heads. Mm -hmm. And this has happened in recent uh, and has been argued for by people who believe in the nap, quote unquote. Okay, uh, you know, in, in recent months and years. And, and I think that that's absolutely ridiculous. 
you know, in fact, that whole notion that... that what per- happens if a natural disaster starts, initiates force on you, right? I guess that's when you, why you have insurance, right? Well, that's why you get on space shuttle and, you know, make sure no women on, are on there so that their <laughs> menstrual blood doesn't get in the way of your vision because you're going to take that baseball bat to the entire fucking earth, right? Because, well, Mother Nature's going to have to pay because my window broke. I mean, like, this right. is... So, here's, here's where part of the problem comes in with a lot of this, okay? And if you want to say that this pet was part of this other person's property... Your property aggressed upon my property. Therefore, you started it. Therefore, you're bad. It's your fault. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, what I'm, yeah, kind of what I'm getting at is that property, like the concept of property rights comes around the respect principle of other human beings. And I am not hearing people defend the notion of property while keeping respect of individuals in mind. That's right. It's not there. All right. Well, we respect your time. So we want to thank you for tuning in to Sex and Science Hour this week. We'll be back at you next week. Sexandsciencehour.com. And of course, don't go away. We got the after show coming up. Stick around. You've just heard Sex and Science Hour. Game over. Play again next week. Sex and Science Hour After Show. We would like to invite you to do your shopping on stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. And uh, there you can go to amazon.com and buy anything your heart desires. I need to sign up for that whole one link thing so we can get, uh, you know, more than just US because I know we have worldwide listeners that really want to shop. So I will get on that, I promise. But uh, in the meantime, U.S. shoppers can go there, stuff.sexandsciencehour.com, and you'll be part of our after show. Yay! Everybody wants to be on the after show. Woohoo! Um, so anyway, <laughs> what did people buy this week? Well, we had a car air pump wedge, heavy-duty inflatable shim alignment airbag leveling tool for auto repair. Now, what do you do with this? You um, open windows with that. That's what you do. You open windows with it. <laughs> That's right. You break into a car. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. You can wedge it in the door or wedge it in the window. Ah, uh, very clever. And then you inflate it. And then, and then you can um, unlock the door. You can usually. So for ten ninety nine, Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> yeah, that and Slim Jim, rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, Davidson's Earl Grey decaf tea. Why would you have decaf Earl Grey? I don't know. I have a whole box of it at home. But you bought it by accident. Totally. And, and, and <laughs> it's so, you know, it's really funny, okay? Because I needed the caffeine. Like, I was out of caffeine. <laughs> But because oh, I didn't have any, so, so this is the thing. So I go to the store to buy some caffeine. I go to buy some tea. Yep. Uh, but fix. Right. But then because I don't have caffeine, I end up buying, I don't, you know, I can't concentrate enough to look at the box to realize that it's decaffeinated and they don't have the fucking decency to like change the complete color of the box. You know, it shouldn't mm-hmm. just be gray Bigelow's. Uh, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to mention anything. But uh, <laughs> and anyway, it, so, so I end up with decaffeinated. Then I get home and I'm like, oh shit, it's decaffeinated. And then what the hell am I supposed to do? You know, and I drink You're it. You're supposed it does to borrow from my stash. Nothing. Oh, I know, the sweetheart. Worst. I know. Well, we went back to the store and we got the caffeinated yeah. stuff pronto. But yeah, that was very that, that is the vicious cycle you can end up living in when it comes to decaffeinated tea. I don't trust it. <laughs> what what's the vicious cycle? The vicious cycle is is that, you know, you don't have caffeine, but you finally get to the store to get caffeine, but then because you don't have caffeine, you end up buying decaffeinated oh, stuff because and then you don't have caffeine. Stupid decisions because oh, your brain's not sharp. Yeah, oh. that's it. It's terrible. <laughs> Don't get don't get in that loop there. Yeah, it's bad, vicious, vicious. We also had Twining's Everyday 200 tea bags. That's just like a regular black tea, not decaf, rich and full-bodied. Woo. And a royal family Japanese mochi variety pack, including red bean, taro, green tea, and peanut. Now, mochis are like these little balls of carbs where there's a gooey center and a glutinous outside, which is like a chewy outside. Oh, I used to and eat they're the shit sweet. Out of these. Yeah, sometimes they're frozen. Sometimes there's like ice cream mochi, but sometimes it's it's basically just rice starch on the outside, I think. Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, yeah, red, red, green taro, green tea, and peanut. Mm, they're big in really Japan. Good. Yeah, they're big in Japan, and they're coming over here. Top cabin erg- ergonomic design bicycle handlebar grips with a holding s- wider holding surface. These are like bicycle handlebars with not just like a regular cylinder, but like a bigger surface area to grip onto, I guess. I need to get out biking more. I, I love a good bicycle ride. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of caffeine, equal exchange organic very dark chocolate, 2.8 ounce pack of six. So we got six chocolate bars. That looks really good. Um, you know, Trader Joe's has this chocolate that I really like. I think I want to say it's like from Costa Rica or like Dominican Republic or something. It's like, uh, it just has a very unique, like kind of fruity taste that I've never really had a chocolate like that before. 78% dark. So pretty dark, no soy, no dairy, nothing. It's really good. But, uh, I bet this tastes a lot like that. And this was a six pack and it's vegan, gluten-free and fair trade. You know, can I tell you a funny story? Yes. Okay, so when I was when I finally got to the age where I could get my own apartment and I could have my own car. Yes. In oh the car, boy, that's exciting. Yeah, in the car, I would always have, and I'd go to you know, I'd go to the, the local grocery store and everything, and get this every time. I would make sure I had a full complement of like devil dogs or <laughs> so, or like some kind of like devil cake, something that said you know devil or Satan or whatever in it. Okay, and anytime somebody would get in the car with me, I'd say, "Would you would you care for a devil dog?" I mean, I didn't even like sweets. Like I'm not even like that big of a guy on all this stuff, but I would do that all the time. It's like, oh, would you like a devil dog? You know, I mean, oh my god, that's so funny. Just to mention, you know, the devil as often as I could. I was so terrible when I was wow, there. totally you were really people. reactionary against. Oh, I was something. very reactionary. Oh yeah, yeah. You little edge lord. Thank you. This is the 90s. It was great. Now, somebody is uh, appearing to be maybe afraid that they're pregnant. Uh, somebody be bought afraid. 20, no. a pack of 25 <laughs> HCG pregnancy test strips. Now, every pregnancy test on the market pretty much tests HCD, which, HCG, which is the human chorionic gonadotropin hormone, which is the hormone that starts to become produced by the placenta when somebody gets pregnant. So, uh, all right, hold on. Yes. If you need a 25 pack, tell that guy to get a vasectomy. <laughs> a 25 pack. Well, maybe pack. they're trying to get pregnant in a good, oh, like they want to get pregnant. I don't know. All right. All right. Uh, you know, people take tests for different reasons, but this was only $8 for 25 test strips. So, so they're test strips. So it's like you, maybe a reusable, like, like you keep the little stick that you pee on, but you switch out the strips, the test strips. Oh. I don't know. I don't uh, have much experience with this. So. Yeah. A red lobster gift card for fifty dollars. That was nice. Man, we those those garlic rolls are like they have like the garlic cheddar rolls. Red lobster. Ooh. Oh, I haven't good. had them in years because I don't eat bread. But I really damn. like legal seafoods. Um, yeah. Legal seafoods has a great gluten free menu as well. It's true. Pocket protectors. An eight pack. Otis white pocket protector for school office. Eight pieces. I used to wear this one of those. This is a literal pocket protector. We have nerds in our audience, Brian. Beware. I love it. I love I it. Love it. I, I think it's stylish. I would totally wear one of these. Me too. I love it. Uh, Fruit of the Loom Fit for Me Beyond Soft Brief Panties. Five pack. Oh, I like Beyond those. Beyond Soft. I really like that. Are those meant for like soft... women? Yeah. They look I'd like, wear them. They look like, uh, look like women's panties but i don't know i'd wear them so it's fit for me it's kind of gender neutral we also had some uh hanes women's cotton core extended size brief panties pack of five and uh yeah those look good i like how they come up to the belly button i'd Mm -hmm. wear those too yeah well you could (laughs) (laughs) uh we also had awkward silence (laughs) (laughs) i was just imagining brian wearing these panties they're kind of like like plaid uh we had gone to plaid uh, we had a magnetic bike mount for your GPS. That sounds handy because you got to know where you're going when you're riding your bike. Absolutely. As we talked about last week on the show, um, somebody bought my favorite toilet paper. Oh, oh no, this isn't mine. Uh, my this favorite is my one. favorite. I, I actually, this is what I buy. That's what you buy. Okay. Scott, 1000 sheet per roll toilet paper, 27 rolls, a cube of 27. Now, admittedly, these are kind of, these are a bit of a scam. Okay. Why is it a scam? Because they're trying to... Because you're throwing money down the toilet? Yahoo. Uh, so <laughs> the, telling you there's a thousand sheets is making you think that like there's more toilet paper there. 
for you right. to wipe with. It's okay? like three ply, right? Or two ply. Well, that's the thing is it's really thin. Yeah. And so you're <laughs> you better off more. buying Angel Soft, uh-huh. which doesn't, you know, because you only need like three three Q or three squares, I'm sorry. Right. Three squares of Angel Soft as compared to you, you need 20 you know, squares of the thousand all, Scott. It's all a wash. I don't know. I mean, I would have to guess that if you buy the thicker toilet paper, you do save more in the long run, unless you're like a miser with your toilet paper. In in which case, I don't know if, if I can do anything for you. <laughs> I want I want somebody to like to sell that that that's that silk on a roll. You Ooh. know, where where you are wiping your ass with silk, and yeah, I, like that. Th- then I think you know the the hype. You know, like like it lives up to the hype. Yes. Because that Scott 1000, as much as I buy it, it doesn't live, you know, I go through it just as much as I would any other role, really. <laughs> okay, and finally, we had four different kinds of Soylent. Ready for this? First is Soylent Cafe Coffeeist. They're all people. Like coffee flavor. Yes, it's all people. Uh, 14 bottles, pack of two. Then we had Soylent Cafe Chai, another 12-pack of 14-ounce bottles. Then we had Soylent Cafe Vanilla. And finally, we had Soylent Cacao. So I guess that's chocolate. So we got vanilla, chocolate, chai, and coffee. Soylent. People. People. Soylent people. Anyway, that's going to do it for us. If you want to contribute to our after shows, go to stuff.sexandsilencehour.com. We would really love to see your stuff on there. And thank you so much for tuning in this week. That's going to do it for us. We'll see you over at sexandsciencehour.com. And have a great week. <laughs> Woo.